A special note about this podcast, Kathleen and I went back and forth for months to get the episode recorded. And when we finally got it nailed down, my father was dying of pancreatic cancer. One more time, we rescheduled. When dad passed, priorities in my life became more clear. And this podcast is one of the biggest. I wasn't going to leave season six unfinished. So here we are. We recorded this episode just three weeks after my father's death. I ask for your generosity with me as my brain was not yet firing on all cylinders. I forgot my train of thought from time to time, and I can't recall details, names, and references as easily as I usually do. We did our best to get all the pertinent details into the show notes, so look for them there. And thank you for being my badass listeners and hanging in there with me in this profoundly transformative time in my life. Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, psychotherapist Kathleen Lakey and I do a deep dive on trauma. First of all, what the hell is trauma? How do you heal trauma? And what do we do about living in a traumatizing and trauma-informed society? After many episodes referencing how trauma is related to our physical health, we're doing a whole episode to explore it. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Well, this is very exciting. I am super stoked to have a very dear friend of mine, Kathleen Lakey, who is a psychotherapist who, as you introduced yourself to me, said that you have worked in the area of trauma and done trauma therapy for 15 years. Is that right? Yeah. Let's see here. I I got my degree in 2010. So I would say pretty much since then. Since yes. 12, trauma 12, 13. So around us. Yeah. Yeah. And, yes. and what was interesting when I met you was I had just started in my clinical work and then also personal work, starting to hear more and more, like, you know, I've talked about Gabor Mate on this podcast about a million times now, but mm-hmm. he had started to come into my world and a few other conversations. And I think it's up right now. There was actually a, God, I'm going to get the name wrong, but there was a summit, a summit for healing trauma globally that happened last fall. And my mom sent me information about it. And it was like, I don't even know how many speakers they had a hundred. I mean, it was a huge multi-day event where there were like 10 or 15 lectures a day. I mean, there was just so much happening with it. It's this conversation of trauma and societal trauma and personal trauma. And, and one of the things why I want to have this conversation with you is even I kind of feel like I'm throwing this around. I'm like, what, what is it? I mean, how do we determine trauma from the shit that happens to us? And and where is, where is it become trauma? And when is it like, I just had a bad breakup or yeah, my mom Mm -hmm. and dad had an off week or month, or maybe even year where life was hard when I was growing up. Like, like, how do you, or are we all just fooling ourselves and we're walking around with bucket loads more trauma than we think we are, which I also think that might also be true, but you know, so we'll get into these questions in just a second. I just wanted to create like, you know, since meeting you and actually having somebody that has made this part of your life's work has been really illuminating for me. I've learned a ton from you already. And I'm really excited to bring this piece in to heal because we've brought it up on a lot of episodes. And then I kind of leave people in this world of like, well, good luck with that. Like, I don't know what to do about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it is hard to do stuff about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I want to kind of, usually I might even get into like your background and how you got here and all of that. And then I want to get into the meat of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. I got my, I got my master's of social work from the University of Utah in uh, 2010 and I got my degree like right as the recession hit. And so I'm from Salt Lake city. Right. And my husband and I were like, well, like maybe we should, maybe it's a good time to look for work outside of Salt Lake. It was really, there wasn't a ton of work, you know, this was right kind of as the affordable care act right before, you know, was kind of becoming a thing. The Affordable Care Act had a huge impact on mental health and it, you know, kind of boosted, you know, a lot of people to be able to access mental health care that they weren't able to access before. So I think mental health is much bigger now than it was then as I'm thinking like the recession and this and that. That's so interesting. I'd never connected those dots together, but when Mm -hmm. I look at 
I mean, granted I graduated school in 2009 and I opened my practice in 2010. So I, we started at the same time. And I also had this experience of like conversations shifting and opening up. But then to be honest, Mm -hmm. before I went to school, I was a raft guide and a downhill ski race coach. So I wasn't really like hanging out, finding out what people were thinking (laughs) in this area. So to me, it feels like it opened up, but I actually get that connection of what a direct impact of a political decision Yes. Making a difference actually, which that those yeah. things don't always go together. Um, exactly. In giving people access. That's pretty rad. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really interesting. And it's something I didn't really even connect for, for many years. I mean, I was just, you know, little in the field and green and it wasn't until a few years ago that it was pointed out to me how much of an impact that it had for, for, you know, the many, many people who rely on insurance coverage and, so it before the Affordable Care Act, only about 50% of all health plans covered substance abuse and mental health. And the Affordable Care Act changed that, that all had to. So, I mean, if you think about 50% is like incredible. So, yeah, so that's just kind of a fun, interesting fact, because there's, you know, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent now, which I will this whole conversation. That's but perfect. Welcome to the like, club. That's how we get to the good stuff, yeah. though, is like, we never know what nooks and crannies we're going to end up. I wouldn't have thought to ask you about the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, so my totally. listeners get the benefit of our wandering brains. <laughs> Yay. No, yeah, it is. It's really, it's good stuff. But you you were saying that was when you and your husband were looking outside of Salt Lake for work potentially. Yeah, totally. And so, so we, I ended up in rural Alaska getting my licensure hours, which was a really incredible experience. And that's where we ended up just kind of searching for jobs and like being open to interesting places. And rural Alaska is a very underserved area as far as, you know, pretty much everything. Geographically, it's really isolated. Culturally, it can be isolated. So it was really, it it was really interesting. I really found myself like really thrown into trauma work pretty instantly. And I was fortunate to have supervisors who were really pretty aware of that and brought in a lot of training for us on trauma, but there, there was a lot, a lot of trauma in the community and in the mental health work that we were doing. And so that just exposed me very early. And I learned about the ACEs, you know, I think in my first year of work, and started to use that questionnaire. Define that for us. I'm familiar with it, but define what the ACEs yeah, totally. study was. Yeah. So the, the ACEs questionnaire is, is a questionnaire formed out of a bunch of research done out of the California schools by Kaiser Permanente, I believe. And gosh, I hope that's right coming out of my brain. But, you know, they studied, they studied the correlation between trauma and health and physical problems that people develop through their life. And they found that this 10 this 10 question this 10 question questionnaire could predict certain health outcomes the higher your score the higher your risk and all the questions are trauma related you know and you can find this just googling it and it can be a really interesting place to start with people and some of those questions are pretty hard so be prepared if you look it up but some of you know they they the questions span all types of abuse and so that's that was really interesting. I mean, a lot of my, a lot of the clients I was working with were scoring, you know, in the seven, eight to 10, you know, area. So, I mean, I'm not looking so much at the physical, but as far as the the level of post-traumatic stress and, and such. So anyway, I'm, yeah, going into deep, deep things here, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah no, about but my you, background. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so then you spent a bunch of time up in, in rural Alaska And that kind of sent your trajectory into this area. Yeah, I think it really did. It did. And it just became more and more of an interest, an interest of mine. And I mean, I've up, up until my private practice, I really worked with highly underserved populations, you know, and I just saw an incredible amount of trauma and felt very helpless. You know, I think a lot of therapists do. I think that a lot of therapists burn out in those fields and in those populations. And so because of just this high level of trauma that, you know, historically, in my experience, weren't given a lot of tools to work with. And so, so I've worked all the way from with children all the way up, you know, children from zero to a hundred I've worked with, I've worked with a lot of different people. And that was one of the really cool things about 
being in rural Alaska was I got to see so many different kinds of people. And then coming, I was there for about five years and helped develop like a case management program that that's still going up there, which was really fun. And, and then, yeah, came back to Salt Lake City. Didn't realize I'd end up back here, but did and very happy to be. And, and started to work in school-based mental health for a while. So working a lot with teens and children, still seeing a lot of trauma. And then just kind of got to this point where I was like, okay, I really just need more freedom. I need more if, if I'm going to continue in this field, I need to, I need space, you know, like, and so I'm going to do private practice. I'm going <laughs> to remember thinking like, I'm going to try this. If it doesn't work, I'll have to change my career because, you know, there's a, it's a really, it's a really tough system to be a part of. So I opened up the, my solo practice and I started to look as I, as I grew and as I started to work with more people and as I started to feel that more like more freedom and more possibility. I started to explore different trauma training and treatment and found EMDR and and got trained in EMDR. Oh gosh. I guess it's probably been about four years ago now, I want to say. Four, maybe five. Yeah, no, about four years ago. And so I got trained in that and just kind of kept deep diving into this because EMDR, when you get trained, is very, I mean, probably anyone would, would, I've talked to a lot of therapists who feel the same way or practitioners where you get this training. It's an extensive training. It's, you know, two weekends of three days, I mean, six days of training and you walk out and you have a protocol to use, but there's so much more. There's just so, so much more. And people are so complicated and their trauma is so complicated. So I just really started to deep dive because I started to run into problems and I started to run into people who couldn't tolerate EMDR. And so I started to learn a lot about dissociation and about dissociation as far as like the more acute diagnoses, dissociative disorders. I started to do a lot of specialized consultation in dissociative disorders and started to work with dissociative identity disorder and everything kind of in between. So um, between that and, you know, generalized anxiety, which at this point I kind of tend to believe is trauma related to Uh um, my perspective is kind of that everything comes from something. And I, I tend to believe a lot more in nurture than, than nature. I certainly think we can be, we can show up with like certain predispositions or certain temperaments that then kind of lead us down our path, but there's always these adverse experiences if you really dig in. And so at this point I use EMDR and trauma, a trauma lens really for everything. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I started to dig into that and I started to get into internal family systems work, Richard Schwartz's work. And yeah, so that's good. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I want to now back, this is so good. I want to backtrack on a couple of things just so that you know, even for me, like, I I mean, I've thrown around the word trauma a lot on Mm -hmm. this podcast and in my own exploration. And and for me, I've come from the other side of the fence of Mm -hmm. seeing all these physical illnesses and chronic illnesses and starting to trace back. And, you know, my mentor, Dr. Tom talked about how like autoimmune disease in particular, which is one of the main areas I focus on pretty much all autoimmune disease starts before the age of seven, having to do with how the immune Mm -hmm. system develops between zero and seven. And then you put yourself in the world of children between the ages of zero and seven. And then again, I'm referencing Gaber Mate, but he's one of the leading experts who's been willing to speak out about this. And there's not as many people doing that yet. He has a lot of documentation in the book when the body says no of the connection between how many people who have autoimmune diseases are women 80% and how much of that has a relationship to the experience of trauma or certain kind of psychological stresses and that the immune system directly gets impacted by that. And where this used to be kind of the, oh, I don't know the great way to say it because I I don't believe in this, but that hocus pocus mind-body connection of the 90s, the metaphysical like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. is now hard science. Yes. And 
I even look at, you know, cause I have people who are working with therapists on generalized anxiety, but they also want to work on their physical health and they come to me mm-hmm. and we take food allergies out and we clean up their gut and their anxiety gets better. So it's like, yeah. it's still nurture. Totally. <laughs> it's, it's like totally. this complexity yes. of, of the physical and the nutritional and the toxicity and the physical nutrition mm. nutrients of love and the toxicity of trauma. So I want to yes. actually ask you what to me sounds like a dumb question, but I think it's not, which is what is trauma? How do we define it? How do you know that, or how do you get a sense that something might've been a trauma in your life? versus, well, it's not like we want to demonize every negative experience that we ever have. So how do I tell the difference? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's still, I mean, up for conversation. I mean, I think that historically, a lot of people are using trauma in the context of post-traumatic stress disorder, right? But I mean, I guess for me, the way I define it is really, I mean, I guess if I had to put it in a nutshell, it'd be like any adverse experience that continues to impact you, you know, I mean, it's like you said earlier, like, is this something that's just big stuff or is this, are we all just carrying around a boatload of trauma? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, does everything does everything need to be reprocessed with EMDR? Does everything need, need treatment? I, maybe not. You know, I think for me, what I think about when people tell me, when people show up in my world in whatever way, you know, they're saying, you know, if someone shows up in my office and they're like, oh, and I've handled that trauma, I've, I've dealt, I've worked through it. And I say, and I say, oh, and I assess it. I say, okay, when you bring it up right now, how distressing is it? One to 10. And if they say anything more than a two, I want to work on it because yeah. you're still feeling it. You're still feeling it. And I know that with the, the power and the incredible healing effects of EMDR, that it can be lower. Yeah. So I think it's a lot about kind of, it's very subjective. And, you know, we talk about in the therapy world, there's big T and there's little T. And it's like, we're all trying to quantify it, right? It's like kind of terrible in a way, but you know, we need a, we need a way to talk about, you know, the severity, but at the same time, it's still very subjective. So, you know, and they have, they have quantified that, you know, big T is like life-threatening things, assaults, you know, like life and death situations. And then small, you know, little T is, I mean, see, this is, this just kills me because I don't agree with all of it. You know, little T is like, I was bullied in, in middle school or, you know, I it's, it's more, it's more on the emotional level that we put the little T and I don't, I don't know if that's always fair. It really, so, so I go back to the person and I say, you know, well, what is it like for you? Like, What's your, you know, we in our, in our clinical world are always trying to put things in boxes and we do that for various reasons. And at the end of the day, it's like, well, how does this impact you? Like, what does it feel like? We deal with the same thing physically is like always trying to quantify, you know, well, how big a deal is this or not? And it's not up to us as the doctors to make that decision. It's up to the person sitting in front of me. And it's also like, I have to contextualize everything in terms of what somebody's goals and desires are. Mm-hmm. How totally. big of a problem Same. this is or isn't has to do with, well, how do they want to live their life? What matters to them? What are their, what are they working towards? Yes. And I don't know, cause I'm not the therapist, but I know from a toxicity standpoint, people can have major exposures that have a big impact for a short period of time, but they can also have very small ongoing exposures that over time, like wear the immune system down, totally degrade certain mm-hmm. parts of their body. So I can imagine that it would work similarly with trauma where mm-hmm. one incidence of bullying might even end up impacting somebody in a way that they, you know, I mean, I can think for myself where there were certain things that happened in my childhood where I actually walked away from it empowered because of the way I handled mm-hmm. it. Like it sucked right. in the moment. And then I was like, I'm a badass that I worked through that. Right. Then there were Mm -hmm. other things that were like under the radar for me that it hasn't even come up until my forties that I have Mm -hmm. now looked at it through the lens of realizing it was almost 
like the silent poison in the air I didn't even know was there. And now I can see all this impact in my life mm-hmm. and yeah. not to sit here and leave everybody out and be so vague. So I'll just put it on the court, which is I've noticed ways of being and acting around myself in relationships, romantic relationships and sexual relationships. And I've mostly internalized that is, you know, and I'm going to get super vulnerable here, but I'm, I do that all the time on this show. Yeah. I've mostly internalized that is there's just got to be something fucked up with me. Somehow I didn't get the rule book, like that way to make relationships work that way to have a health, you know, and it's not like I, and this is the thing. It's not like I've been walking around in all these horrifically unhealthy relationships either. They're all kind of normal. They're all kind of like unworkable this way or that way. And this actually (laughs) was already coming up for me the minute I met you. I had already started to have this, like, I should probably start working with a therapist around some, there's something in here that it's like, and it feels invisible. It's like, there's an invisible object in my life, but I now have run into the object enough times. I can't see it. It's just there. And then through conversations with you, conversations with a couple other therapists and some of my own work in trauma, I literally like pulled an entire Pandora's box open of being molested when I was three years old. And I've had other times that I was suspicious of that being the case. I knew the facts around it. I knew the possibility of it. I have no memory. And so then I had to wrestle with like, is it true? Is it not true? And then that whole question, like, is, does this count? Is this mm-hmm. a big enough deal? And, totally. and our conversations were a big part of me starting to reveal That's less of an important question as how am I impacted? And then as I've read books and started to explore in this and like, again, I wish my brain was firing a little bit better, but the book that I was reading was almost like the textbook on healing sexual abuse and sexual trauma. And I will make sure it's in this, in the um, show notes. And it was the first 50 pages of reading that book where when I started the book, I thought, well, this will be interesting and give me some good perspective and probably make me a better clinician where I'll be able to help my patients and direct them to these resources. I didn't expect to like read the pages of my journal. Like it was example after example, after example, after coping mechanism, after ways people contort themselves in order to deal with not dealing with, or when they have the, you know, and, and like there weren't that many examples in the book that didn't apply to me. And I'm Mm -hmm. just now opening that up. And so it's been my question. How do I define what's trauma in my life and what isn't and what quote unquote counts as big T and little Mm -hmm. T. So I get that (laughs) as clinicians, we are constantly assessing for the sake of tracking and even knowing where we're at, but then it is Mm -hmm. so hard because of how much of it is subjective. And I think we are now getting to a place, most of us. Where just because something is subjective does not make it invalid. Absolutely. No, you bring up some really, really important. I have so many thoughts going through. Good. Um, this is how we know we're getting yeah, to get stuff. No, for sure. I mean, I think that just, oh, let's see here. There's so many good things. I, I mean, I think where I want to go is like, there's this, there's this natural tendency when we go through trauma like, right, we all are always adapting. Humans are highly adaptive, which yay. And so, but there's, there's all these adaptations that we develop through, through the positive experiences in our life and through the negative experiences in our life. And if we learn to be afraid of something, right? Like we always use that example of like, yeah, you learn, you know, if you touch a hot stove, like you get burned, right. And that keeps you safe from touching hot stoves. And that works in a lot of ways in life. But you know, like if say, you know, I always use the example of like, if you were in a car accident, and you were in a red car, when you were in the accident, you know, and different, different people might pick up different things. Maybe some people flag cars as dangerous. Maybe some people flag red cars as dangerous. Maybe some people flag you know, like the kind of tree that was near the accident is dangerous. Maybe people get multiple flags, but your nervous system is going to adapt to that situation to try and keep you safe. 
And some of, sometimes those adaptations, especially if our trauma is preverbal between one and five, when there's so much going on and we don't have a lot of words, then, you know, it gets, it can even feel very jumbled and unconscious. We can have these feelings come up that we don't even understand, but essentially we end up like all red cars are dangerous. And it's like, okay, well, that's your adaptation. That's your, your body did what it was supposed to do, but it may have gotten a little jumbled because all red cars aren't dangerous, right? How many red cars are out there right now that are being safe? So it's, it's a really, really good way to think about like, you know, we, we end up with these adaptations and then they don't maybe blueprint over what society is saying or what everyone else is saying. And we're like, oh, well, I'm fucked up, you know? And it's like, well, no, you're not, you're not fucked up. You, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. No one is fucked up, you know, like it, it's just, you know, we, we developed a series of adaptations that led us to be adapting maybe in a way that was really useful in that moment in the moment of being in an accident with a red car being afraid of the red car would have been awesome <laughs> right and like that we, would have been you know and I, I mean this is also like i think it's a little bit interesting territory to 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 go here especially since i'm not an anthropologist but when we look at like human evolution and coming from human animal to mm-hmm. human complex social structure and mm-hmm. what i have you know i've i've read I have read on the topic and, and, you know, the book sapiens comes to mind where they talk about how we became the way we are. It's like a generalized history of all of humanity and incredibly brilliantly written. And up until definitely a thousand years ago, and maybe even closer to like two to 400 years ago, most of us never had a social network group at more than 125, 150 mm-hmm. people ever. Right. Right. Like wouldn't have even met them. No contact. You know, I have 3,500 people yeah. in my Facebook feed uh-huh. and I actually have met most of them at some point in my life. And our nervous systems were designed for the 50 to 125 person group. And if you actually deal with that in reality, what it would be like if your entire life, you only ever were around the same 125 people. When one new person came in, your nervous system would have a whole world of like, who are they? Can I trust them? Where did they come from? What are their behaviors? Like, are what we kind of tend to think of as neurotic anxiety about things mm-hmm. were very important, well-grounded, and also the amount of change that we experience, our nervous system going through. I mean, I don't even know how many times I've moved, how many entire social groups of people I have come and left from going all the way back to elementary school, to changing to mm-hmm. junior high, to high school, going to college. I went to three colleges. (laughs) I moved across the country multiple times, like just that alone. Then you add in actual events that caused cognitive dissonance, where you have a person who's supposed to love you, who says X, Y, and Z, but then does also these other things that your body interprets. And for me, one of the things that made a huge difference and like going back to the red car accident was up until it wasn't just in conversation with you, but when I met you is when this whole exploration started. I had previously made my nervous system wrong for its adaptations. Mm-hmm. And I had even come from a coaching structure, which mostly has been massively empowering. And I love mm-hmm. the education that I got, but they are not therapists and it's not ground in trauma therapy. And what I experienced was making my nervous system wrong for protecting itself was like, Oh, well, that's Mm -hmm. a disempowering conversation. Right. Oh, you're just diminishing blah, 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 blah. And Mm -hmm. I, part of my red flag for myself was I have done a shit ton of work Yeah, and I'm a pretty successful person. And I have, so what is it? What am I missing? And part of what I was missing was this honoring in the fight, flight, freeze, and fawn conversation. Uh-huh. And I actually don't even understand fawn completely, but I'm definitely more freeze than fight or flight. 
Yeah. And that, which you and I have talked about disassociation, and that's been a whole new world because even to me, when I'm just in a difficult conversation, I've learned to socially adapt to just take it and Mm -hmm. take it and 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 then walk away from the person and process it by myself if I process it at all. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And how so many, so many people do that, right? Like our world is so, I mean, I'm always really thrilled about the way the conversation is going, right? Like more and more people are willing to talk about this and like to talk about like about the having a trauma-informed society, right? Like what trauma-informed conversations, you know, nonviolent communications. And yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with all those ideas. Like these ideas that how much our world has changed in such a short period of time as humans, like, you know, like 200 years ago, the world was really different. And how, how much are we like, can we keep up with that? Like, that's a lot. <laughs> um, and and, not so, and, in, and yeah. in some other ways, like, I think of like, wow, you know, I'm always like, super excited that, you know, younger generations, like, are really willing to talk about and bring to the table more of these conversations of like, wait a minute, that's not okay. Like, if I don't feel safe in a conversation, like, I, you know, can I leave it? Like, what if it's with someone who's my superior, you know, like all these things start to get brought up. What if it's someone we can go into racial things, we can go into gender things, right? Like, and I think that we, we learn that stuff when we're little, right? That, you know, we have to stand there and listen and be good. And I think we're starting to challenge that stuff because it does show up later as this, you know, ingrained stuff that we don't even think about. I think there's so many things that we, we don't sit and, and talk about like, oh, I, we don't talk about these unconscious patterns as like what our presenting concerns are. Yeah. Right. But then when we start to dig into it, we start to like, oh, well, when, when do I feel disempowered? When do I feel shut down? When does my body freeze? When do I not notice my body anymore? When does my body get tense? These things that we're taught um, in our world to really shut off and, you know, be quiet, sit down, listen. And we really need to be teaching people much more. And a lot of the work I do is ultimately getting people back in touch, right. With like, wait, I'm feeling like I'm shut down in this conversation. Like I I'm just, I'm not here. (laughs) Like I took a walk like 15 minutes ago, you know, and trusting that and being like, something's wrong. I don't know what it is and it's okay to not know. And then, you know, being around people who can honor that and be like, well, that's what I was just thinking about is like setting it up. And I get not all relationships may have this spaciousness, but you know, in just my societal version of being trained by life and people and, and everything, uh-huh. it, it always was like, well, the person who checks out or the person who gets, I even remember reading books on marriage counseling that was like, oh, that's stonewalling uh-huh. when someone will no longer respond to you and they just won't participate in the conversation. And that is a thing, but totally. now more and more and more, we're having to turn ourselves completely inside out and recognize that, that trauma begets trauma and unresolved trauma Mm -hmm. leads to more trauma. And so, you know, I can go back and look at my grandfather and his abusive relationship to my mom and aunts and uncles and my grandmother. But then I look at how he was raised where Mm -hmm. he, you know, and it's just this like passing on this lineage from generation to generation. And many of the people I've talked to who have had an experience of abuse from their parents. And then they look at what their parents had from their parents. And, and there's also societal conversations in this. My sister and I were just talking recently about what we were noticing. And I just never thought about this. We have a cultural conversation of the traumatic impact Vietnam had on many men and women who served over there. Mm -hmm. And those even who were impacted by the service. Well, the ones who survived, most of them became parents 
And there's another generation of trauma from Vietnam in this country. I'm not even getting into the world of the Vietnamese, which is massive. And my brain can't even comprehend what it's like for them. But this whole other second generation, which is actually a lot of people my age Mm -hmm. or slightly younger that are the children of the people who served in Vietnam and how that rippled down. Some of it was chemical warfare and some of it was physical abuse and some of it was, you know, exposure to violence and so many other components and, Mm -hmm. and how that's showing up. So there's that piece, but going back to what you were saying about being able to be safe in a conversation and connect with other people is turning it inside out. Like I actually had one partner I dated him for two years and we had one of the most extraordinary relationship agreements. And I now create this all the time, which is it's the responsibility of the person who's the least triggered in the argument to take care of managing the safety of the argument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I like which turns the whole thing on its head, because usually the person who's the most upset is often the person who's more in a trauma loop or they're more dealing with (laughs) processing something and the blame gets put on them of like, well, you're the asshole who's angry or you're the one that's Mm -hmm. got a problem or you're upset. And so we actually created an inverse. We had language around it that the person who was the least triggered was the one responsible to cause the the conversation to go to completion, to be empowered. And, And I've since learned that even tension in our body is an animalistic Mm -hmm. instinct that there's something unsafe in our environment. Yes. Whether it's true that we're actually unsafe or it's a learned behavior from previous Mm -hmm. experiences. Holy moly. Like, I mean, part of what I'm kind of dealing with is like, well, good God, when am I not dealing with something? (laughs) I mean, and that's like, I want to make sure we don't just leave people in this, like, well, we really are all in this giant, bag of trauma and totally, you know, like, like, here you go. Sorry. And (laughs) one of the places I've brought my background from, it's actually a Buddhist practice. Pema Chodron talks about going to the places that scare you. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a practice called Tong Lin, where you actively seek out some of those uncomfortable spaces and you sit with them and bring awareness to them. When I was taught this practice by an amazing teacher named Elizabeth Namgel, she very clearly said Tong Lin with the wisdom of discernment and that you really can mm. put one toe in the water and then come back to the calm, warm, sunny shore and put another toe in right. the water and like dose and pace. And that it's not, you know, and, and this was one with you and I, when I went from mm-hmm. Well, I know I've got some stuff about relationships and I kind of can see how there's been these patterns, you know, and I had this one relationship in college that was really hard. And you and I talked and you're like, typically someone who experiences a relationship like that in college, there's something else. Now we knew it didn't have to be sexual trauma. It could have been a lot of other things. Right. In totally. my case, I did end up opening up this experience of sexual trauma from my childhood mm-hmm. And for my listeners, this is brand new for me and is still something I'm at work processing. And it's felt a little bit like, holy fuck, I got to eat the whole elephant all at once. Oh, yeah. Like there's this whole world now, (laughs) right? And so I'm going to put myself on the table for you to kind of like, like, how do you deal with that? I also Mm -hmm. know that there's people that have dealt with, I'm going to use your words, way bigger T than me. (laughs) And I know they're still alive and walking around on the planet. So like, like, Mm -hmm. how do you work that out? Like Mm -hmm. severity and dose and working out your healing journey and not, I mean, not just getting swallowed by the whole thing. Absolutely. I think it's a great question. And I think like, you know, a lot of times more often than not, like from my experience, you know, people, people tend to unearth a lot, you know, like it kind of comes it when it rains, of course, kind of thing. And they can feel a lot like, oh, damn, can I close Pandora's box real quick? Like reassess, get stuff in order maybe first, you know? And it can, <laughs> can I warn super... my boss, my partner, my <laughs> yeah. kids, like, well, this thing's happening. There's a monster right, in there. Yeah. A yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I, I mean, I don't know exactly why that happens, but 
I do believe, and, and from a lot of really good consultation been taught that, you know, we don't get handed what we're not ready to deal with. Mm. Now that sounds really cliche, but like your nervous system truly like, and I use this with EMDR, like I trust the wisdom of someone's nervous system. I trust that it's not going to get, it's not going to pop out unless the person if their nervous system is ready to look at it. And there, I mean, there's many people I've worked with for many years. We've reprocessed certain things, this and that. And then it's like, finally, they're ready to deal with this one thing that maybe I didn't even know about, you know? So I do believe in the wisdom of the nervous system. So there, there is that as a comfort. I don't think you're, I don't think that it's like, this people often feel like out of control, like, you know, there's this tidal wave that just hit me and I don't know what to, to do with it. And I, I'm fucked up because of this and because I can't handle it all because we're all supposed to be able to handle it all. And it's like, just, just, you know, okay. Like it's to me, I think there's wisdom in it. That's what I, that's what I go back to. And I'm certain, I'm sure there's people who disagree with me and that's okay. But the, I think the real, the real, thing I would tell you and anyone else who's had a lot come up that has shown up on their table is you need to, you need to ask for help and you need to take it slow, you know, and there's no rule book about needing to get through it in a certain amount of time. You know, like I think that asking for help is a really big piece of trauma recovery Yeah, because when we were in those moments of intensity, there was typically not help. And that's typically why it's, why it's trauma, right? We weren't able to get help. And so asking for help is this beautiful and healing and very vulnerable and scary thing. And so I think that, you know, certainly when you're in those moments, that is really important to look for help and to ask for help and to be, to be open and to be vulnerable and to let people in to help you. And I think as far as like not eating the elephant, I think the other piece is like, we're all taught in our society, like more is better and faster is better. And yeah. <laughs> right? uh-huh. we both struggle with it. And you overachieving like, business owner, yeah. professional women. I don't know what you're talking about. Right? Like what? I need to slow down. I don't like that idea. And I think, you know, being, being, you know, being active is and being, you know, an achiever or being a doer is empowering. Right. And so there's a lot of people with trauma who are, are doers because you feel, you feel more empowered. You feel like you can, you can make things happen. We've discovered that being busy is yet another addiction. And and (laughs) I use, I mean, busy isn't even the half of it, but like, right. And I will flat out say that I can see that I had a pattern of being a workaholic as both a sense of empowerment and it did in a sense of accomplishment, although Mm -hmm. I had very little capacity to accept acknowledgement for what I'd accomplished. And that was way out of balance. And and the sense of like nothing other than the extraordinary was okay. Being ordinary was terrifying. Yes. And, and, and so it's another... this antidote to all of that drivenness uh-huh. to come into this space of like, you know, and I'm glad you said the piece about the wisdom of our nervous system. And my listeners will put this together very shortly in the next several mm-hmm. episodes. So I'm going to go ahead and just spoiler alert here is, you know, I am about to release multiple episodes of Kendra interviewing me about my dad getting pancreatic cancer and dying of pancreatic cancer. And just for the sake of a timeline, I did trauma work that uncovered my sexual abuse history in February and April. And my dad was already dying of pancreatic cancer and we didn't know it. And literally it was three weeks apart that I uncovered the memories of the molestation and dad got diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. So it's been a lot. Like I took that whole conversation, which was plenty in and of itself of like, okay, I'm going to start regular EMDR. I'm going to start unpacking this. I'm going to start really looking at my relationship to relationships. I literally made a declaration that I am not having any sexual relationship of any sort for at least a year. I'm like tabling that I'm working on my inner healing journey. I'm exploring, you know, 
And literally three weeks later, I came home to my dad's diagnosis and that all has gone on the shelf. And so I even going into this episode, I'm like, are we still, is this a good idea? Should I even talk about this? (laughs) But my whole inquiry about heal is what does it really actually look like on the court to heal? And I have been Mm -hmm. one of the test subjects through this whole journey of two and a half years around this podcast. And like, like you said, when it rains, it pours was a fucking tidal wave with a typhoon and a hurricane all in one shot. And then there's this spiritual part of me that looks in at this and says, I don't think this is happening for a reason that there is a massive transformation in my relationship to my father called he's dead and a national massive relationship to what it is to experience the masculine in a healthy way in a provider protector form. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that my dad orchestrated all of this or anything, but there's, there is that place in me that because it's happening, it's supposed to be happening this way. I don't know what that looks like. Ask me in 10 years. And I may be like, oh, let me tell you how that all was the perfect storm that led to da, 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 da. I don't know Mm -hmm. yet because I'm literally, it's pouring rain where I am right now. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm grateful to have these opportunities to be so transparent about it because I believe when I hear other people's stories and they're sharing about their transparency, like that's another piece of the puzzle. Like I'm this whole thing about asking for help two thoughts about that. One, that was massive for me. Mm -hmm. The other is my experience personally was for many years, like maybe a decade. I thought what I was doing was asking for help. And it was more of the same abuse history. I would go Mm -hmm. to men in my life, not therapists, not trained professionals, not people who had any distinction around this world. And I would process and work things out with romantic partners. My process, my history, I now can see that that was more of the same shit. There was codependency, there was unhealthy relationship, there was power imbalances, there were control dynamics. Now I'm not blaming them. I can actually see that was my nervous system recreating the familiar doing the same old shit it had learned to do for whatever reason that was part of my coping strategy. That's some of what's just recently become revealed. And I'd had people say, have you ever talked to a therapist? And I had a whole bag of things about that. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, and which is funny, cause like, you know, I, I'm a naturopath. You'd think it's not, you know, far, yeah. I mean, we're in the same orchard. You might be a pear tree and I'm an apple tree, but we're in the yeah. same orchard. Right. But it was, And I saw my resistance to that conversation. So this is straight up my opinion, but my advice literally is if this is coming up for people and this is something they relate to, go to a professional who's Mm -hmm. trained in the distinctions of it. Then you may be able to get empowered around all kinds of conversations to have with friends, Mm -hmm. with partners, with family. I've had huge support from my community, but it wasn't until I was willing to deal with this with people who had decades of training and distinction around it, that, that many of the locks of Pandora's box started to click open. It was, it was very distinct before that. And I can actually even Mm -hmm. see some of my own nervous system propagating more trauma to more trauma to more trauma in the way I thought I was addressing it. That's just my personal experience. So I don't want to like, but you might even be able to speak to like, how common is that? How uncommon is that? Like what that's like for people, but asking for help. Yes. And I really just emphasize going to people that have training and distinction in this world. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that, you know, going to, going to professionals for sure. I mean, if you believe you have trauma, like really working to understand that going to professionals and going to professionals until you feel like you found the right one you know there's a lot of different kinds of professionals out there and they're all you know different and I think you know gosh there's so many different therapists I've worked with personally and they've all been very very important for like that period of my life you know and so you really yeah you want you want to to look for help until you find the help you need. And for people with a lot of trauma, sometimes that can be really hard to know what yeah. that is, you know? And so I think a professional 
is a good place to, to ground yourself, you know? And I think that like the patterns, I mean, when you talk about reliving a pattern in a romantic relationship of like processing things, you know, I think that's another adaptation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. thank goodness you knew how to do that then. And isn't it great that you're learning new ways now, right? Like it's, it's all this process and this journey that we're and there on, were places think- where that moved the needle. Like I can see mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. in conversations with friends and even some of the conversations with, you know, romantic partners where like, I knew there was stuff about my sexuality and I won't get into all the gory details. Maybe there'll be a future episode where I'm, I'm happy to share more about it, but there was, there was definitely stuff there and it would come up with a partner mm-hmm. and then me and the yeah. partner would go to work on it. And, and like, and there were places that there was safety and security, but then there was a little bit, I mean, sometimes a lot of bit of like <laughs> how we learn about sex in the first place is mostly from our peers, which is like, <laughs> mm-hmm. not necessarily totally. the most educated, empowered group of people about consent <laughs> and like taking care of each other's bodies. And so it just became like, right. like more of that in so many ways, but mm-hmm. um, totally, I do want to make sure we highlight some of the tools you've mentioned EMDR several Mm -hmm. times. I kept meaning to actually have you define what that is. And we'll for sure have some resources in the show notes, but tell us more about how does it like, what is EMDR? What can it work on? How does it make a difference? Yeah, sure. Sure. And I think before that, I want to go back just really quick. Yeah. Yeah. But you were talking about, about like, you know, your nervous system, like you've had just this incredible, 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 like opening and dumping and crazy wild typhoon hurricane stuff going on. And I think, you know, like it's, I think, so I want to just talk this, this will move into the EMDR conversation, but you know, this idea that our nervous system, it, it won't, won't open you up to things that you're not ready to handle. And I, I think I'm saying that really in the context of doing trauma work, right? Like things, memories popping up, like, you know, feelings popping up, but certainly like in life, right? Like you get handed uh, something that's totally out of your control. And that's kind of a different situation. You don't get to choose that. And so I do believe in the power and the, not the wisdom of our nervous system that, and dissociation, I always talk about as a gift, thank God we have dissociation. Thank God we can move away from difficulty. That is something to be grateful for as we, if we continue to feel that way through our lives and it causes problems, then yeah, we, we can address that. But in those moments, we needed that to get through and we need to say thank you and and so I, I think that there's this whole idea of the window of tolerance, which really shows up in EMDR work and really any trauma work, but especially in EMDR. And the window of tolerance is what, what you can stay present with, what you can stay grounded with. And, and, and I can give you like a link to this if you want to share it yeah. with as a reference. But the way that the window of tolerance is set up is, is a, above the window of tolerance is our um, sympathetic nervous system overreacting, which is called hyper, um, hyper arousal, right? So this is our fight flight. And um, this is where we're, you know, we're overactivated, we're flooded, we are anxious, we're chaotic, our thinking is rigid, we're overwhelmed, we are feeling too much, right? So anxious people live in this space, right? And then we have below the window of tolerance, the parasympathetic nervous system is, is really overactive. And that's our shutdown, our dissociation, our depression feelings, our feelings of being disconnected from reality or from our world or ourselves or a situation. And so these are very, very important, not just in EMDR work, but in any kind of trauma work or any kind of introspection that you may be doing, anyone about your life, your experiences, where do you land in this chart when you think about the things that are hard, right? Where do you land in this chart when you're in an argument with a loved one? <laughs> you know, like, where do you, lo- where do you land in this chart when you have a lot on your plate? You know, and so being in your window of tolerance means your, your nervous system is more balanced, right? Like you are, 
able to hang, you can experience difficult things. You can experience joy. You can experience anger, but you feel like you're present and you're with it and you're connected and you can think clearly. And so I think that this goes really, this is really important with EMDR. I'll use this as an example a little bit. Sometimes I'll get people who call me up and they're like, Hey, I'm working with a therapist on my trauma. And I heard I need to do EMDR about this incident or this issue. And my, my therapist said, you know, just, just find an EMDR therapist and, you know, you'll probably be able to do it in like four sessions. And it's like, okay, hold on. (laughs) 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 Um, But really, you know, I, like I end up having conversation around, you know, yes, this, this type of therapy moves really quickly, but it doesn't move like it, it really depends on the person and the situation. And, and a lot of times there's just not enough education around it. So there's no blame to anyone. But, but what I tell people is if you're doing trauma work, what you have to think about as far as projecting out how this is going to go is how present can I be with what's difficult? Do I get dissociated? Am I flooded? Can I hold in one hand what happened? And that it happened and that I'm very aware of it. And in the other hand, that I'm safe now. And that's really being in your window of tolerance. So when you work with someone who has is their window of tolerance has narrowed, which is kind of the terminology we use, is the more we've been through, the more narrow this this window becomes, then you off sometimes you have to work to widen it, or maybe you have to work to widen it just around a certain issue. So, so that's just kind of a piece there that I think is really important. And I would, you know, hearing your story and being your dear friend and and knowing and caring for you, like, these are just the things that come to mind that are important. This Um, is such a great, I mean, I get it's an explanation. It's kind of an analogy. I mean, even that conversation of widening the window of tolerance, because it's like, I can mm -hmm. literally map out my life and there's certain areas of my life where my window of tolerance is massive And there's just so much capacity to be with very seemingly challenging things or difficult or stress or all of that. And like, Mm -hmm. we're so aware physiologically how there really is healthy stress and how good that is for our bodies. And I mean, that's what keeps our bones strong. That's what keeps our teeth aligned. It's what keeps our nervous systems functioning. But then that differentiating of what is healthy stress versus unhealthy stress and where is it? And then I can literally see, so as dad was getting sicker and when he died and the last three weeks, my window of tolerance in all areas of my life has shrunk and some areas of my life, it is a very thin pane of glass that could just crack. And I mostly just, again, sort of thought like it was so ambiguous to me until you literally painted that picture. And now it's like, Mm -hmm. I instantly have a conversation I can now a share with people and give more perspective. Yeah. And I can see literal conversations that I've had where it was like, I was good. I was good. I was good. And then for me, one of my tells that I'm pretty triggered is my brain goes blank. Like mm-hmm. no, there is no thought. Totally. And people can be like, what do you, and I literally like everything has gone dark. Yeah. I now know yeah. from experience don't go any further because panic attacks usually come if I push in or that gets pushed in or I don't do what I need to, to reset myself Mm -hmm. or leave the situation or, and sometimes it's not even that I have to like, stop talking to the person. I need to stop talking about that or in that way, like, you know, whatever that is. And I've gotten better. Mm -hmm. And that was part of my clue that stuff was coming up with some of the old ways my nervous system used to operate way more often in my twenties have been resurfacing. I've been noticing, like I hadn't had a panic attack in eight years and I've had three of them in the last five months. And like, Mm -hmm. there's things that I can tell, but it's, it's like, I'm not regressing. That's not right. The word, but there's something from past ways of being that are now present right now to get worked through. And thank you for that distinction about life coming at you (laughs) versus (laughs) processing trauma. Cause totally. And, and I have a tendency to diminish what I'm dealing with all the time 
inside of my slash overachiever slash, you know, all the things of like, oh, this isn't that big a deal or, you know, I should be able to handle it all or all those kinds of things. Right. So we haven't gotten into like how, what is EMDR? Yeah. Yeah. So, so EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it is, it is a therapy that was actually developed in the eighties. It's quite old, but um, yeah, like just kind of in a nutshell, it uh, uses kind of a combination of, of cognitive exploration. Like you identify the negative thoughts, the negative beliefs you might hold. It combines the experience of the body. It it combines, you know, including in the emotions that you feel and then around whatever you're into reprocess. And then the reprocessing itself is done with bilateral stimulation. And that is just a really fancy way of saying tapping your left side and then your right side. <laughs> so you can do that. We love to create these Latin interpretations of, you know, where it just right. basically means you have red itchy skin, but we have this whole right. fancy way of saying it in Latin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's, so it's essentially, you know, I mean, we, we do it with different ways. Eye movements was the beginning. And so that's where, hence the name where you follow some, you essentially do what you do in REM sleep. Your eyes move back and forth. You follow uh, a therapist's fingers, or like I use a pencil back and forth, a light bar, there's different tools, or, you know, now we use actually like a tactile stim- a sim- stimulator where it goes back and forth. And so there's different ways to apply the bilateral stimulation, but essentially what the bilateral stimulation does, and I think they're still really trying to figure out why it even does this. I, you know, um, I'm always trying to look for more neuroscience on EMDR. And it's really pretty surface level from what I can find. But essentially, you, when you move your eyes like that, you get your left and right brain on board, you calm the amygdala, and it's kind of like you get all these parts of your brain in the same room to talk to each other. Because, because I love that. when we're triggered, yeah. I mean, when you say my mind goes blank, I'm like, well, yeah, your prefrontal cortex just shut off, girl. Like it's, you can't think, right? Like your, your, your brain, all of the thoughts, all of the stuff you need to like articulate is, is off. It's offline. And your, you know, your limbic system, you know, your whole reptilian system has taken over and this happens sometimes like we think of oh if you're in fight or flight you're you know it's like something from a movie like you hit the deck like you're a veteran and you see a helicopter go by and you hit the deck and that's a flashback but it doesn't have to be like that sometimes it's just an emotional flashback you know where but if you get any kind of any kind of shutting down of your of your thinking brain then you're really in some kind of state and so it's great that it's really important to, to be watching for that stuff because it's different for everybody, right? Like the way I know I'm out of my window of tolerance is totally different than the way you know you're out of your window of tolerance and everyone is so, so different. So, so yeah, so we, so we get with these, with this bilateral stimulation, we get the brain online in a way that's different and we essentially work to connect material that is is triggering fight or flight to more adaptive thinking and more adaptive thought processes that are locked in different parts of the brain that aren't able to be accessed in those moments of fight or flight. So, yeah, so that's kind of in a nutshell. Um, well, and you already addressed my follow-up question, which is how the hell does it work? But the answer is we don't <laughs> totally understand that yet. Yeah. That's, yeah. it's really, yeah, I think they're still researching it. I, I mean, it's, there's a lot of neuroscience behind it and it's a, a lot about, you know, being able to, I mean, there's so much physically that happens with trauma. So yeah, there's a lot with the brain and calming some things, activating other things and getting things to communicate because the truth is, is if that, if you were in that red car accident, it's over now, but your body still thinks it's happening. Mm-hmm. When you see a red car. So let's connect it to the part of your brain that knows that it's over and knows that not every red car is dangerous. So that's essentially what you're working towards. Got it. Clear. Yeah. 
I have so many more things I want to ask you about, but I think we might need to put a pin in it from here. Totally. I know. Always a good sign when there's like, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? (laughs) And, uh, you know, I know we're going to have pretty extensive show notes. I did think of the name of that book, guys. Don't worry. It'll be there. And we'll make sure that there's good resources, including, I mean, for you, you're in the state of Utah. So if somebody's actually Mm -hmm. in Utah, but, you know, just even being able to offer your expertise and your education here. Thank you so much for doing that. Oh, of course. It's a pleasure. uh, I'm so glad to be, be here and chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. Till we get to do it again. Yay. (laughs) Thank you to today's guest, Kathleen Lakey for her wisdom and grace. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickper, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We will see you next time. <laughs>